Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verse 23. Everything is possible for one who believes. Let's pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a chance to study it together in this place. God, we pray as we approach this text this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would give us hearts that are tender, that would receive your word as a seed planted in good soil. That you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. Lord, we pray that you would make our hands strong, that our work in this world would be as your very own. And God, we pray as we leave this place and and face a new week, that a word of life and hope, a gospel word, would be found on our tongues. Lord, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. We pray together as a family of faith saying, amen, amen. Friends, please be seated and take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. This is the last Sunday morning of the summer. Are you sad or happy? Are you a mixture of both? I'm sort of a mixture of both. I'm, I'm, I'm a little, little both. This is our last, uh, our last Sunday of the summer. Throughout the summer, we have been in what we have called the Coffee Cup Series. We have been looking at passages of Scripture that are printed on coffee cups that, that make their way into needle points. Uh, that sometimes wind up on bumper stickers or, or something, like, something like that. Maybe something you could find at Mardell's, you know, uh, some Jay Bezery type stuff. Uh, those verses just land there. They're the kind of verses that wind up on testaments. You know testaments? Uh, those, little, those little breath mints with Bible verses. You know, maybe, maybe the verses that wind up down at the burger joint or the bottom of your paper cup, you know, the In-N-Out cups. Somebody said if you eat every day at In-N-Out, after a year you get the whole Bible, you know. Uh, that's not true. They, they're selective about these things, and, and, and that's what we call the coffee cup verses. Uh, it's important for us to, to study these for, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that I wanted to do that is just sort of to model how to put a passage of Scripture within its biblical context. We've been calling that putting the ruby in the ring. Uh, and learning how to do that is very important because we can get in a mess if, if we're not careful. Uh, not long ago, I saw on, online a picture of one of these little devotional calendars. Have you, you know, the little flowery calendars, daily calendars, uh, with the Bible verse a day on there. Uh, and there was a photo of one day uh, in, this, in this devotional calendar, uh, and it had a passage of Scripture there. And the passage of Scripture was from Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, that says, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, that's a passage of Scripture that someone might look at and say, hey, that's encouraging. You know, and it becomes sort of the foundational text for prosperity cult in the North American world or something like that. Uh, And so if you pull that out of its context, you can turn that into, hey, let's get after it. You know, if we just worship God, we get all this cool stuff. The problem with that is Satan said it, not Jesus. (laughs) Those those words came from the devil. Uh, And so it's important to put these things in context. Uh, Our verse from this morning is Mark 9, 23. And I have a bona fide coffee cup with that on it today. This is a gift from my friend Betty Still. As I started this sermon series, Betty brought me a cup. And she said, Matt, I want to give you a cup. And I'm expecting a sermon. Uh, so, so here is the cup and here is the sermon. 
Uh, and the text of Scripture is, and I'll read it to you straight from the coffee cup. I've read it from the Bible. All things are possible to those who believe. It's a beautiful line. It's a sentence that comes from Jesus. But friends, we need to be careful the way we approach our coffee cup verses because sometimes we turn them into a talisman. Sometimes it becomes faith in faith, not faith rooted in God. Sometimes it becomes a little more akin to the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And God really doesn't want us to go through the world like that, just thinking we can and having faith in our own faith and and pulling ourselves up by our self-esteem and our want to. I was at Stillwell uh, this Friday, and and I love to worship in the chapel at Stillwell on on Fridays. And and I was there, and I was sharing portion of the scripture. And I said, you know, you know, friends, uh, you can want to be an Olympic star all you want, and you can have great faith that you can become an Olympic star. But it's probably not within the realm of what God is going to smile on. So if you have ambitions to beat the Estonians four years from now. You can go buy all the coffee cups you want and have faith in the faith that you have in yourself and you can pull yourself up by that self-esteem and it's not going to happen because God's not about magic tricks. This is about something deeper and richer and more real. This line is really about Christ first and then about us and how we relate to Christ in a secondary yet very, very important kind of way. And it's a sentence that's given within An amazing story, a story that has it all, a story that has joy and agony, a a story that has hope and despair, a story that has great light and good, and a story that has embodied and personified evil. In short, it's a human story, and it's a God story, and it's an adversary story. It's a story about the world as it is right now. Our friend David Garland in his book of Theology of Mark points out that it's a story that's given to us in four vivid scenes. Four scenes. It's a, it's a dramatic play that takes place on the base of a dusty mountain, and it takes place in four vivid scenes. And so today as we take this passage of Scripture from the Scriptures and from our mug uh, and we, we ask ourselves, what does it mean that all things are possible to those who believe? We want to put this ruby in the ring of this fantastic story uh, and experience again these four scenes. So if you have not packed away your number two pencil and your brand new backpacks, get them out and let's walk through these scenes together. The first scene is recorded uh, in this chapter, verses 14 to 19. It's the scene of the noisy crowd. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with him about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth and become rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
You see, Jesus had been with his, his closest disciples. He, he, he'd called away the three from the inner circle, and he, and he took them to the mountain. And, and previously recorded in this chapter is this scene of the transfiguration, this, this great depiction of Jesus' glory and power and the voice of God saying, this is my son, listen to him, pay attention to him. It was such an awesome experience For the disciples that were with Jesus, they just wanted to stay there. They didn't want to move away from this. They they wanted to to pitch a tent and just stay there, to camp out, to live there on that mountain, in that place where they encountered God in his strength and his glory and his might. And Jesus said, no, this is not for us to stay here. There's more for us to do. And, And Jesus, he led them down the mountain He led them down the mountain. And some of you have been on the mountain and you've come to the bottom of the mountain. You may think back in the Old Testament when Moses meets with God and his face is radiant with the presence of God and he hears directly from God his direction, his covenant, his life, his words. And he comes down to the bottom of that hill and everybody's lost it. Lost it. How disappointing it must have been for Moses. Well, Jesus, he comes down from this mountain where they had experienced this, this transcendent glory of God. And he walks, he walks toward a group of people that were in conflict, they were fussing, they were fighting. The nine of his disciples that were left were fighting with some religious bureaucrats, and there was a big crowd there, and there was a bunch of noise and sound and fury. In this room, just about everyone here has either been a parent, a coach, a teacher, a camp counselor, a Bible school volunteer. Just about everybody in this room has worked with kids in some form of fashion. Raise your hand if that's true for you. All right, that's almost 100% of the crowd. Because you have done this, you have walked up at some point or another in your life on a crowd of kids having an argument. If you're a mom or dad, you've done it quite regularly. Well, Jesus walks up on a group of people having an argument, and he does what we all did in that same moment. He asked the question, what are you fighting with them about? He said, what's going on? What's happening? And out of the crowd, the voice of a father speaks, one voice. Maybe all the religious leaders were like, I'm not getting in the middle of this. Hey, he's their rabbi. Let them speak first. Hey, Peter was up on the top of the hill with Jesus, or he'd have been right there going, oh, let me tell you. So the loud mouth was out of the picture. Everybody waited to speak, but the father, he took this opportunity to lay his ragged heart before Christ. He said, I brought my boy to your disciples. My son has been bound by a dark force. He's been bound by the adversary. And it's affected all of his life. And I brought my son to your disciples. I was looking for you. You weren't there. And I asked them to help. I heard a rumor that they'd helped others in similar situations. In fact, they had. 
I, I, I heard that, that you and, and, and that your people, that you've been bringing liberty to those bound like my son. I, and I brought him to you. You weren't there, so I left him with them. And they were not strong enough to help him. And these teachers of Israel, they didn't take a turn. They didn't give it a try. They just started fussing with the disciples. And what you had left at the bottom of this hill is you had a frustrated father and a bound son, probably teenager, older, a bound son, uh, afflicted. And you had a bunch of people fussing and fighting about it. And Jesus looks over this scene. He steps right off that felt board once again. And with a disappointed heart, he says, How long shall I put up with you? You're not trained to think of Jesus talking like that, are you? He says, How long am I going to put up with this? You see, Mark has been depicting Jesus in, in the most careful way as the unique Lord as the one who has come from God, the one who is God, who is full of power and might, who will crush the adversary and bring salvation and life to the world. Mark has been very careful about this. And in this scene, this scene echoes the scene of the Old Testament, where God himself speaks with frustration over his people. You may recall the scene from the book of Numbers. God had delivered his people. And, and at every turn, they'd been whining and fussing and complaining. God brought them out of slavery. Uh, and there was a moment where they started to crave leeks and onions. Okay, friends, we've been just this dumb. But for just a moment, let me make fun of them for a minute. I'm no longer a slave. That's good. But... They had really awesome onions in Egypt. That's bad. Let me go back over here. I'm no longer a slave. But you think the onions were something, the leeks. Oh my gosh, the leeks. Can we just go back? And then they would run out of water. Oh, we're going to die of thirst out here. Let me, let me go back. We're going to do this. Let, let me go back. Well, they come to the point here in the book of Numbers in chapter 14 where the report comes back. They're going to get to go. Uh, and they say, oh, there's big people down there. It's going to be kind of tough. And this is what we have. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we died in Egypt. Or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This liberator, he's not cutting it. Let's pick a new one. Let's get a new boss, a new Lord, a new master, and let's go back to Egypt. Slavery and onions. And down in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? How long? And here is Jesus. Here is Jesus in Mark chapter 9 speaking the words of God. 
How long? How long? He had authorized his disciples to bring liberation, and they'd forgotten him. They tried in their own strength, and they had failed. How long? How long? That's the first scene. The second scene, we, we leave this noisy crown and, and we focus our attention on Jesus and this Father. It becomes a, a, a very intimate conversation and it begins in verse 20. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on him and, and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Boy, I've said that one a time or two. What a beautiful and powerful scene between this man and Jesus, this daddy and Jesus. In the first chapter of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, and the leper said, You can make me whole if you will. He believed that Jesus was powerful enough to, to, to fix what was broken in his experience. He just didn't know if Jesus was compassionate enough. He didn't know if he was willing. Here we have the, the very opposite of that. We have this father, and he says to him, If if, if, if you have enough power, I believe you will. I believe you have the compassion. I believe you have the love. But are you able? Are you able to overcome this darkness that has so bound our family? Is the light in your life bright enough to push out this? Are you able? And this is where Jesus looks at him. And this is where Jesus says, all things are possible. To those who believe in me. Yes, the light of the gospel is stronger than the shackles of the adversary. It's possible. For I came not to, not to condemn the world, but to save it. It's possible to have life and to have life in, in me. Again, this echoes the Old Testament this echoes the, the story of God's covenant. Do you, do you remember when, when the messengers of God came to Abram and, and they said, this time next year you're going to have a son. And he's an old man. And his wife is an old woman. And she has her ear against the tent. And she hears this promise. And she laughs. And it's not a humorous chuckle. It's one of those cutting, sarcastic, yeah right kind of laughs. God speaks. Is anything too wonderful for me? Is anything too hard for me? Why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. Oh yeah, you laughed. This is the kind of interaction we have here with this father. Is anything too wonderful? Yes, I am willing. And yes, I am able to overcome this darkness in the life of your son. And the father, the father professes his faith. And it's messy but it's sincere. You see, God doesn't need a perfect faith. He needs a heart that's bent toward him. And he said, I believe. He cried it out. And then just as boldly, he said, help me with my unbelief. 
I've lived with this so long, I am worn, slap out. If I'm going to believe, you're going to have to believe enough for both of us. I'll believe, but you got to believe in me and for me. I'll believe, but I need your grace. I need your life. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the second scene. The third scene begins in verse 25 and runs to 27. And it's the scene of Jesus' authority as the Lord of the universe. When he saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the, the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that they said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. The crowd giving him a little space to talk. When it became clear Jesus was about to do something, they started running because they wanted to see the show. Jesus, Jesus was the strength of God's grace in the flesh. But he was no carnival man. No white suits or fog machines for Jesus. He honored the dignity of this broken boy and this hungry father. And when it was clear that they were about to become a show, he acted and he acted quick. Because he didn't want anybody standing in line asking for an autograph. He said, come out. And the darkness obeyed the light. And it looked like he was dead. And I love the way Mark said it. He looked so much like a corpse, they said, he's dead. <laughs> Mark uses an economy of words. I just love it. He's dead. You imagine there for just a moment, they thought, man, he really blew it. The disciples, they couldn't help him, but he killed him. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, a, a, another argument was about to erupt because that's what religious people do. We, we talk. We debate. We talk. They were about to talk some more and call it a day. And Jesus knelt down. Because, friend, that's what grace does. Grace, grace stoops down. Grace gets on down in the dirt with you. Came on down. And he grabbed that, that lifeless hand all out of the dirt. And he held it strong in his own. He said, come on, get up. And the little boy arose. A few sentences later, Jesus would predict his death and resurrection. Here, he acted it out because sometimes words aren't enough. If if you're able, I believe you're willing. If you're willing, I believe you're able. He answers them both in this, and we've been praying ever since, God is great and God is good. And the demonic had to bow in the presence of the Lord. And it was a signpost of the ultimate destiny of all that is lined up against the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And on that dusty hillside that day, it was a living sermon.
to Jesus' willingness and his ability to bring salvation and life out of the death that was brought on by our own brokenness and sinfulness. All things are possible, meaning life, life is possible on the other side of death. Freedom is possible on the other side of captivity. Things are possible. His faith is in Him. Well, that'd be quite a story, and it is quite a story, but it's not exactly the end of this one. Because we leave all of this happening, all of this doing, and we retreat in the last couple of verses, 28 and 29, to a quiet place. A place where Jesus is present with His disciples. They are crestfallen and broken and embarrassed. They feel guilty. They feel shame. They have so many questions. And in verse 28 and 29, they bring them to Jesus. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? You see, they'd done it before. Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out. Only by prayer. In this one sentence, Jesus does two things. One, he affirms the reality of the conflict. He, he doesn't for a moment say that this was just some type of illusion on a hillside. He recognizes very soberly that we are in a battle. A very real conflict between darkness and light. And I think we've come far enough in the postmodern time that everybody's pretty much to the place where we're willing to admit there's some real evil there and we're not talking about just myths or illusions but there's there's real evil in the world and and jesus in this private room with his disciples he affirms that do you remember reading the the iliad maybe it's been a few years ago but you probably read it back in the day there's a line in there iris to priam in the iliad sir you go on talking forever if, if we were still at peace. But here's war. War is upon us. Jesus was saying to those disciples, hey, we can go on talking all we want. But we do need to realize the reality of the war, and the war is here upon us. And that's between life and death, God and the adversary. J.R.R. Tolkien carried the Iliad around in his bag during World War I. Maybe he had that line in his heart when he took his own pen in his hand and he wrote the conversation between Theoden and Aragon where the great leader says, I will not risk open war. And Aragon says very plainly, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. In this quiet room with his disciples, Jesus affirmed the reality of the battle that we are in. And we do ourselves no favors if we become too sophisticated or smug or arrogant to affirm what Jesus affirmed about the world that we live in. Scripture calls us to resist the adversary. Scripture calls us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Scripture proclaims Christ to be the victor, but we know between now and his coming that there are very real battles to wage. And that one of the primary functions of the church is to join Christ the victor, the victorious lamb, in the battle for lives of people. 
And Jesus wanted them, and he wants us to understand the reality of the conflict. You're starting college, and college is so bright and so fun and so beautiful and so wonderful and so frightening. You go to work every day. It's so wonderful and so fraught with danger. You're in a marriage, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful, but there are siren voices that call you away. That's reality. And we have a poverty of spirit if we don't honor that reality and live from the basis of it. To his disciples in a quiet place, not on a hillside to talk about, but with his disciples because their lives were being changed by his words and his witness. He affirmed the reality of this conflict. And then he gave them ample, ample tools to be victorious. He says, these come out through prayer. You say, Jesus, we want a little more than that. We want a seven-step formula. Can you give us a 400-page book? Can you tell us to go up on the hill and, and, and do this or that or the other? He gives them one sentence. These come out through prayer. Meaning, you were successful in the past because you, you lived your life in vital connection to me. And you allowed me to work in and through you. You allowed the God to work in and through you. You did your work on, in my authority by my name. And here, this moment, on this afternoon, you had this notion, I got this. I've done this before. I've done this several times. We came back and we told Jesus about it. And he said, uh, and this one afternoon, you said, all right, come on, let's give it a shot. And the failure was on you because you didn't connect with me in the proper ways. Later in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus would say, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. Live your life connected to me. Draw your strength and your life from me. And if you do, you will bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, what did Jesus say? You can do nothing. That's, that's comprehensive. In the face of this darkness, they were able to do nothing because they'd lost their vital connectedness. Last week I was in Lebanon. I was preaching in the mountains of Lebanon, and, and I was staying at a Maronite convent. I've always wanted to stay at a convent. No, well, we rented out this place, and we stayed at this convent. Uh, and on top of every building in this convent, some of these buildings were several stories high. They were they were grapes arbors with grapes, dangling grapes, because Maronite Catholics they they don't use Welch's for communion, you know. Lots of grapes over there, you know. They do magic tricks with them like Jesus did in early parts of the gospel. No, they, it takes them 21 days. But they all grow grapes. <laughs> all grow grapes. And these grapes on the top of these buildings, they draw their life from a vine planted in the dirt that looks like a pine tree. Every, every taste of life comes from that strong, gnarly root. Jesus would have us draw our life from him, the strength of the vine. So he said, this kind of ministry, through prayer, through trust, through humility, through great love. One story and we're done for this morning. Our church over the past few years, we've had a ministry at the Delta Inn Motel. 
We've gone a number of times to the Delta Inn and had a number of, of different events and uh, services and Bible studies and parties. And I've played Santa Claus there at least twice. You haven't lived till you've been to Santa Claus at the Delta Inn Motel in Bell Mead. I'm a great Santa. I'm a really good Santa. Uh, and one week I was out there with Malinga Chala uh, and, a, and a bunch of other people. Malinga is from Lusaka, Zambia. We were talking to a young man and and uh, this man had been a veteran of the wars in the Gulf. Uh, he was a traveling guy working for, in power plants. And, and we were talking. We were telling him where lunch was going to be, where the little devotional was going to be. And, and, and he was just kind of carrying on with us. And he, and he looked up and he said, you know, guys, this sounds great. This Bible study and this lunch and all. He said, but what I really need is an exorcist. I thought, okay, that's an interesting conversation. Malinga goes, I'm from Africa. I can do that. I did what you did. And that guy looked at him and goes, are you for real? He said, yeah. We talked about Christ. We talked about the love of Jesus. We talked about what Jesus did to forgive us of our sins. He talked about how he had been raised in the church and how his grandmama prayed for him and how he loved the church. He confessed Christ he committed his life to Christ and then Malinga said very very calmly without any fanfare no white suits or fog machines without a crowd running now we will pray for you and he very gently asked God in the name of Christ to free this man of all that had bound him and this war veteran this electrician this traveling worker, this resident of the motel in Belmede, began to weep these crocodile tears. And Malinga and I said, Amen. And he said, And now how do you feel? He said, I am at peace. And Malinga said, Now let's go have a snack. I was in the presence of the great mystery. And I was like, I believe, help my unbelief. But in that moment, prayer and grace and light drove out the darkness. Friends, God wants us to lean in to Him, to repent of our own sin. To ask for his power and his grace to be a blessing in the lives of others. For all things are indeed possible to those who rest their life in him. God, we thank you that on this new week, this fresh week, this beginning week of school, that you have called us back to yourself in this place. Back to trust and back to faith. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray that, that we would recommit our life to follow you with gladness and with passion. Lord, I pray for all of, all of uh, the deception and all of the, the shackles, Lord, that we've grown so fond of. Lord, I pray that you would free us of that. That you would free us of our love of leeks and onions and give us a taste for you, the living God, the true and living God. Do something in us that we can't do on our own. God, we pray in the strong name of Christ.
Friends, I invite you to stand. We're going to sing together. And if you have commitments that you'd like to make public that you have made in the privacy of your heart as we sing together, we invite you to come. David?